Hello, and welcome to Label Sessions Presents. Label Sessions is a global platform that connects you to the best advice for the most interesting people. Whether you want advice, mentoring, or ideas. I'm Josh Nix, content producer for Label Sessions. And in this episode, Keisha Kijano, also of Label Sessions, talks to Steve Gainby. Steve is at the cutting edge, previously launching Barclays open innovation business, Rise, as the director of innovation, and now heading Microsoft's product management approach to establish product-centric ways of working. Steve is a strong believer in outcome-focused, human-centered design to solve the toughest business challenges. Let's hear more, Steve and Keisha. Thank you so much, Steve, for being here with us this morning. Uh, we want to say welcome. Uh, if you mind, for the first question, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and where you are today, and also kind of what your name's for. Um, so I'm Steve Gatenby. I'm currently at Microsoft, um, where my role is head of CPDM, which stands for Consulting Product Management within the organization. So that whole role, the purpose, that's to help us bring those product-centric approaches to our customers. So to help them either create product-centric capabilities within their own organizations and sort of build that product muscle Um because we know more and more companies are wanting to work in that way. They see the benefits of that. You know, It's not just agile, it's about agile, but also making sure you're constantly testing and validating early whether you're building the right things to help customers achieve their outcomes, not just whether you're you know, building things right in two weeks, for instance, and making sure it's, it's also going to solve those customer needs. Um, so helping companies to, to sort of grow that capability within their own organizations and also helping to deliver products jointly sort of Microsoft and those customers um, using that product-centric approach. So that, that's the purpose of the role. And what I'm known for, sorry, yeah, you asked that as well. So um, God, I'm probably known for being someone who, especially over the, the last 10 years of my career, has been someone who's tried to innovate within big companies. Um, so just creating things like the product-centric approach in some of the companies I've been in you know, has, has not been straightforward. Um, you know, it's been a bit different to how they've been used to working. Um, I created Rise as well, which is still going strong, and I'm very proud of that, which was at Barclays. Um, and that was the first time you know, we, we were able to get the bank to work in a product-centric style, so, you know, iterating products quickly, but we were doing it with fintech companies, which was also quite unique at the time. You know, we started that in 2014. Back then, banks... We're not wanting to work with fintechs. Fintechs were, you know, seen as like these young upstarts that are, you know, that they didn't really want to work with. That they were just sort of a, a challenges they needed to get out of the way. Whereas, I think through Rise, we really started to see that benefits of look. Fintechs can bring great innovation, um, very adaptive, able to respond quickly. And um, banks can bring that reputation, the customer base, you know, the the regulatory understanding, and um, there can be great partnerships between them. They don't have to. It'd be enemies that can actually benefit more from from working together. So um, yeah, it was great to build that. Um, could you tell us a little bit more? So speaking of rise, what kind of things did you learn from that, and other other things? What kind of things would you? What kind of advice would you give to others who are starting up something? Maybe something in space. <laughs> yeah, I think. God, with rise, we 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 learned a lot quickly. I mean, we were hacking a lot of it. We started out with just you know a. A small amount of money um, and sort of permission to go and explore this thing just within our own, own departments so or the chief digital officers sort of gave us this, this permission to explore it. Uh, and, you know, in the early days, we, we were doing everything. We were having to you know, to sell bank accounts to, 
to customers, uh, to, to some of these fintechs, rather than just sort of working in the one innovation, just to kind of make ends meet and just to sort of make sure that we, we squared the budget a little bit. Um, but what we did, and I think one of the things we learned quickly is we have to show where there's value. We have to get metrics in, you know, if you're doing something like this in a big company early on, demonstrating that we we're able to deliver things faster and cheaper than the traditional methods. Um, once we got some support with those metrics, being able to show that actually, if you look at some of the business cases that were coming out of it, the ROI on those, you know, was significant and be able to capture that as value, um, even if it's kind of on a net present value basis, because it was about a business case, which was sort of forward looking, just finding those metrics, which people would recognize, um, and support was, was one key thing. Um, and like I say, it took just a lot of hacking and a lot of just like trying things to get to those, but finding the things that resonated. I think the other thing was, you know, in that situation, it, things have probably moved on now, but, um, so I don't know if it'd be as big a challenge in companies. I know when we started it, some of the biggest challenges we had was actually getting our sourcing, our governance, our legal models in place to be able to work with fintechs. Cause you know, you had a this huge sort of corporation that, that has to be very you know, careful. It's a heavily regulated industry. Um, and so all of its sourcing and governance and legal models were set up with that in mind. Um, so being able to work with, you know, a, a five person startup was something that was pretty much impossible. They're not on the preferred supplier list. They're too risky. They, they fail a number of, of boxes. Um, but then, you know, the working with the mic providers with a great learning opportunity as a, as a bank. So how do we, how do we make it so that we can work with these companies, but we're never going to be putting, you know, anything, any critical systems or anything like that with them, but, you know, we get to explore and learn with them. Um, and, and, you know, obviously there's, there's bigger and more established fintechs and how do we work with those as well? So, so a lot of it was, was actually transforming the way the, the bank worked as, as well as sort of finding these great ideas with the, the startup companies. How did you kind of navigate making that change happen within such like a, an already established structure and back? There's a, there's a couple of ways that we approached it. Um, one of my colleagues who I started it with always used to sort of say about, you know, asking for forgiveness rather than permission. Um, so, so sometimes that approach, with, we, we ended up taking that approach. Um, but generally in a way where you know, we, we were doing it to kind of show, look, there's it is possible to do this um, and there's benefits to do this. Um, but we need to be, you know, we, we want to do it in partnership with those things. We don't want to, we don't want to be asking for forgiveness. We don't want to be going and getting around the sourcing model by just buying things on our company credit cards and things like that, which you know, was possible for us to do. But um, obviously that's not the intent of, um, of those policies. So it's kind of just using that as a, as a way to, to stimulate those conversations and try and you know, just challenge some of those existing policies that were, that were in place and show that actually they're quite broad brush um, and we needed to get sort of more nuance in, in some of those policies. Yeah, no. I mean, that very much makes sense. Um, so, uh, business cases are something everyone will be familiar with. Um, what advice would you give to people on how to handle business cases and specifically being agile to different KPIs and success factors as, as you're launching a new venture? Yeah. I'm, so business cases, I'm, I'm never really a big fan of, I mean, you, you end up yeah, obviously we've ended up having to use them and, and in Rise we used them to justify some of our, our um, the value that we were bringing just because we could take a net present value of a business case. But I hate the fact that, you know, a business case, we're, we're taking a net present value looking at a five-year figure ahead. Um, there's no way any of us know what that five-year figure is going to be. It was, it's just impossible. And and so I hate the fact that business cases constantly feel that they can predict with 
huge degree of accuracy and sort of a sense that we're absolutely right on this when we don't know all of the things that we're going to face we've not tested with customers um it's, it's why the product-centric approach is something which really appeals to me because i see the logic much more in saying that we're not going to make any bold statements for five years ahead and we're not going to be held to numbers that we created you know two years ago when we're delivering things what we're going to do is we're going to set a direction we're going to um you know, make sure we understand that it's a valuable direction to go in. We think it's something which has potential. We think, think it's something which has value. We think it's something that supports the strategic direction of the company. Um, well, then we're going to do a lot of exploration on the way there, and we know we're going to learn things, and we know we're going to have to pivot and change direction a little bit and you know maybe approach things in a different way. Um, the thing which will stay constant will be that vision, will be where we think we want to get to, but the way we get there will change and being open to that. Um, and so, you know, that being the case, the only thing you can really do any sort of, you know, put any sort of marks in the ground and say, yeah, five years from now, we're going to be here is in that vision piece. And that vision piece should be more inspiring than specific. And so it's never going to say, you know, we're going to have done X, Y, Z. Instead, it's going to say, you know, ideally, you know, in five years time, we'll be in this, this will be how people see us. This will be, you know, what, what we're known for. Um, and then we have to figure out how to get there. So, so I much prefer that approach. And then within that, so you talked about KPIs. Um, I mean, for me, KPIs are more of a run metric than a change metric. It's about you know how healthy are we? Are are you know, do, are we retaining customers? Are we you know what's our sales numbers at? What's the, the resilience of the sort of stuff we're building? How quick? You know, what's our mean time to recovery when we you know, when things go wrong? Yeah, you know, that's the sort of things that KPIs are great for. But that's very much like say run metrics. It's about you know, it's telling you about the existing thing as opposed to being a great way to track where you're going to. I prefer OKRs from that perspective and sort of having that ability to say, look, we don't we don't know exactly what we need to change, so we can't measure exactly what we need to change. However, we know where we want to get to and what we think we'll see when we get there. And so then it becomes about how do we deliver something which allows us to achieve those key results and therefore achieve the objective. Um, and, and it gives more empowerment. You know, It's not something that's a command and control technique is not something where you're saying, right, we're going to do this, this, and this, and everyone has to then, you know, march to that tune. It's more, here's where we want to get to empowering people to then go and try and achieve it. Um, and then giving them the space and the freedom to be able to go and experiment and explore and validate quickly and, you know, figure out how to get to where we want to go to. But I mean, going from, you said the overarching vision, setting a direction and setting out sort of the, the vision to others, um, that's kind of all overarching the, the broad brushstrokes, but going on to focus maybe on something smaller, on product management. Um, could you tell us a little bit about what keeps you busy at Microsoft now? The way the role works, I spend more of my, more of my time with clients and, and working with them uh, in the product management space. So it, it varies depending on the client. But you know, generally, the sort of stuff that will keep me busy will be, one, helping people build those capabilities themselves. So it's understanding what what how is product management going to bring value to that organization making sure that it is the right thing for them to do understanding where the gap is between where they are at the moment and where they want to get to you know a lot of these companies might have already tried implementing product management somewhere or another um so so everyone starts from a different position um and almost eating our own, our own dog food a little bit on this you know setting a vision for where that company wants to get to and why in the product management space where we believe the gap is what we believe we need to change in order to to close that gap and then going and starting exploring how how we how we do that. So I spend a lot of time doing that sort of work with these companies. 
Um, the other part of it is is helping deliver products. So, you know, while they're going through this transition of, of becoming a product centric company themselves, we also want to start working in that way. So, how do we you know, how do we do the work to understand well, where are their opportunities for for our clients' customers? Um, to yeah, how for our clients help their customers achieve their goals, meet their needs, you know, achieve those outcomes. Um, yeah, we all know customers generally people don't want to buy the product you're selling they want that product to help them achieve you know uh, to, to do to get to where they want to get to to achieve something they want to achieve you know um and so helping these customers figure that out and then deliver products based on that based on helping their customers achieve the outcomes they want to get to um and so that means you know going through everything from that discovery phase exploring what's what the customers need uh, coming up with hypotheses and you know coming up with what we think might be the right solutions to meet those needs and then figuring out how we're going to validate those solutions quickly before we go and build them. Um, so what sort of testing can we do? You know, how can we you know, do anything from just you know, riskiest assumption tests, hypothesis testing, wireframes, all of that sort of great work just to kind of show, you know, to, to help build our confidence that, that what we believe is going to happen is going to happen if we launch these products. Um, and then turning that into you know, a roadmap and a backlog of work um, so that we can actually turn into buildable pieces of work and, and go and deliver those things, and and to acknowledge that that's not you know a flow, it's not a left to right flow where you just keep throwing it over the wall each phase, but you know it's something where you're constantly circling back and constantly doing discovery and validation whilst you're doing build um, and kind of it's, it's an ongoing learning process. I think that's good. I mean, I was read something from I think it was Simon Sinek, which is like start with the why, and then you can figure out everything after that, and that everything the process that you just said kind of lays that out, start with the why, get them, find out what the issue that people, you know, want to fix, work if it in, and then how are you going to do that? And then the what instead of the other way around, which is what a lot of people actually do, I think. Yeah. And and there's, and there's a lot of benefit to that because, yeah, that's starting with the why, that's starting with the the outcome you're trying to solve for your customers and, and, and always focusing on that as well. I mean, I don't like the fact that in products, a lot of people still see it as, well, we deliver this thing and we're done. For me, product isn't about the actual products you deliver you know it's almost badly named in that sense it's about continuously understanding how you help your customer better achieve the outcome they want to achieve which means you're constantly you don't just launch it you launch and then you constantly evolve and constantly evolving until either that need doesn't exist anymore for the customer or until there's no val- more value anymore in in helping the customer meet that need you know and but until then you you, you own helping them meet that need you don't own just delivery of a product which once it's out the door you forget about um and so, and so that sort of ties into a lot of that start with why piece. You know, why does somebody want to have a relationship with your company? Why does somebody want to use your product? But it's not just in the product space either. It ties into so many other areas. So like marketing, I often see with product that, you know, you have the product team building something and then they try and figure out how to sell it or they try and figure out how to market it. Uh, whereas that should be built in, you know, the, the whole reason for the company existing. So that why, which Sunet talks about when he does the Apple example, um, yeah, that that why the company exists shapes everything else, um, and it's the same with the products. Why the products exist should shape. Okay, so we understand this is the outcome our customer needs to get to. So marketing should understand that early, sales should understand that early. So that when the product is released, they've been through that journey as well to understand here's the outcome, here's the problem that our customers are facing, here's the you know that pain point they face every day. Here's why we believe our product's going to solve that, and here's why we think that yeah that's true. And so therefore, you can bake that message in. Um, 
because I know Sinek gives the Apple example. Um, if you've ever read Tony Fidel's build book, and he talks about how when they first launched the iPhone, Steve Jobs was, you know, for two years while they were developing the iPhone, he was constantly telling the story that he eventually told on, on stage when they launched it. And he was constantly telling it to people and using that as a way to get feedback. So again, constantly testing that why and constantly testing, you know, the not what the device was going to be, but what problems the device was going to solve for people and how it was going to improve their lives as part of that story. And so then it bakes that as the reason for, for you doing this all the way through it. So it, it stops becoming about building the device. It becomes about meeting those needs and everything is plumbed behind it. Product sales, marketing, operations. It's all about making that a reality. So it seems really important to have almost the story down first when you're starting a new venture. Kind of, although it's probably... It's probably one of more of those choose your adventure stories, if you remember that, as opposed to the, you know, just a, a story where it's already set. Um, you know, that it's yes, I think you need a sense of the story, but you need to be willing to to pivot the story and evolve the story and, and rewrite the story a little bit as you go, um, based on on how people react to it. Um I guess it's more like an improv stand up actually, where you're just reacting to the uh, reacting to the audience and then maybe you know, changing what you do based on based on audience interactions. Um what sort of practical measures and insights would you suggest for startups and corporate ventures that are seeking to sort how would they gauge their progress and market fit over time how would they gauge their progress in it i think i mean first of all i think they need to decide how they're going to make sure they've got product market fit i often see you know, this is an area which i think um it's kind of blurred a little bit in in how people see whether they they're achieving it for me it's always about it's that boundary between um where the customer needs are so what the what the pain points are what the customers are trying to achieve and and how they achieve it at the moment and you know, often they'll, they, they'll be solving that need somehow at the moment um and what's the satisfaction level like against how they solved it at the moment is it is it a really big pain point or actually are they fine with how they're doing it at the moment because unless you've got that sort of ability not just to solve that need but solve it in a better way than they're solving it at the moment then you're not going to have an opportunity so you need to figure that out first and where there's potentially that that gap you can fill and then it's that vision for how you're going to solve it so not what the product's actually going to be yet as far as features and everything else but almost here's the value opportunity that we can we can hit and that gap between the value opportunity and the user pain points and problems and needs that's your product market fit and I think you need to establish that first. And then once you've established that, then you can figure out how you're going to actually deliver that value proposition. So that's when you start figuring out what are all the features we're going to need to build? What's the user experience going to be? You know, what does this thing actually look like? But you know it based on understanding that the, the fit is between that customer need and the value proposition that you believe you can deliver as a as a company. So I think almost getting into that mindset first is, is important. And then as far as measuring progress against it, well, then you can because there's multiple things where you could achieve product market fit. So if you're measuring your ability as a company or your progress as a company against how you achieve that across a number of different areas, um, then I think you need to look at, you know, it'll vary depending on each product that you launch, but what are the key metrics you think and you think will demonstrate that you're meeting that user need? You know, if it's a, if it's a user who has a need for better advice in the mortgage space, then, you know, the, the way you'd measure that could be, you know, how, you, know, you could you can launch something where it's about how how much more um, engaged are they with um, you know, conversations about mortgages? How much how much is their understanding improved? How much more satisfied are they with you know, whatever? You know, so there'll be measures which are along those lines based on what you're trying to achieve. Whereas you could have a you know another 
pain point that's in a completely different space like ability to find a parking space or something. <laughs> yeah, God knows what it could be. And there'll be completely different measures for, for that sort of thing. But what you've constantly got to do is make sure you're really clear and that you can validate what that need is and the best way to demonstrate that you believe you've solved that need in a better way. And then you know, constantly almost tracking how effective are we at solving that need based on what we believe those measures are um, across whatever different products you launch. But what, what do you think are common misconceptions or challenges organizers organizations faced we're trying to become more customer-led and how do they overcome these obstacles yeah i think the biggest one i mentioned it earlier they people they still see it as we deliver these products and we own these products um and so it's about build this thing get it out the door build the next thing get it out the door um rather than seeing themselves as a partner in helping customers achieve their needs or helping them achieve their out and you know everything we do stems from that you look at just even the way things are budgeted you know, you, you'll look at most companies and the way they'll launch products is they will go and get some funding to say, yeah, we're going to build this product. And then they'll allocate that funding. They'll go stop building it. And then they'll, they'll treat it as a capex, which they'll then depreciate over five years after they've you know launched this thing, which, which gives this thing already a definitive start and end point. And it gives this thing, you know, this idea that it's just something you deliver and then its value decreases over time. Whereas for me, it should be, a, it's, it's an operating expense. It's an opex. It should be an ongoing process to meet that customer need. So it's never just something that's done. It's never something you can depreciate because you're constantly evolving the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. Um, and companies yeah, just don't treat it that way. Companies still treat it as here's you know, a, an investment we're going to make to deliver a thing and then that thing is going to have some value and that value will decrease over time, which just, again, that's into that mentality of the thing you're, the thing you're here to do is deliver that thing rather than the thing you're here to do is to continually partner your customers in helping them achieve their goals. And I think that's the biggest mindset shift I always think holds people back. Because everything around the organization, you know, if you're not a new organization, if you're a traditional organization, is probably geared more towards the former rather than the latter. And so it's a lot to change. So instead, you just kind of fudge it and try and work within that environment. Did you um, always figure that out? at Microsoft or is that something that you implemented or that was already there and you just kind of fostered it? No, so it's not something which, um, so I mean, again, with Microsoft, we work with customers. So customers are in different stages in that. And so it's definitely something which I talk about and try try to help customers with. Um, you know, in Barclays, we very much were a CapEx type organization. You know, a lot of the things we launched were very much in that depreciation sort of you know, mode. And I was, you know, I was owning the P&L and I was, I was often using that to my advantage, you know, because I could launch, I could get a high budget amount now, but actually, you know, on my budget, it could be accrued over five years. So it would lower my, my annual, my annual budget, which would be useful sometimes. So, you know, I can see why it's used. Um, and I can see, but, but as I say, it's just another fundamental sort of building block, which I think needs to be changed because it, it automatically just creates a certain sense of what, what you're doing here is having, like say, those, uh, you know, they start and so it's not something which I changed at Barclays. It's something which, you know, like I encountered at Barclays and kind of started to see the the mismatch between the logic of what we were trying to achieve and what we were actually doing. Um, and yeah, at Microsoft now very much is something where I talk to customers about. And I believe if, if there's an opportunity to do it, it's one of those things, which is it's, it's great to try and do. I think Autotrader just recently has, has, has actually done that. They don't have CapEx at all in their organization anymore. They're fully OpEx. And they've sort of moved to that model. I think it's um it's a beneficial thing to do if you're you're in that place. Um, this slightly pivot it a little bit from giving advice to uh, startups and new ventures. Um, 
at Label Sessions, we we believe that great advice changes careers, business, and industries. But what advice would you give to your younger self? I think, I think to my younger self, I think early on, especially when I started in my career, you know, you, I didn't have a clue what I wanted to do. I didn't have a clue how business works. So you just, um, and so I, I very much just tried to conform. I think, you know, you just kind of do what everyone around you is trying to do. Um, and yeah, now I think the thing I'd say is, is don't try and find, try and find what, what you can do differently. Try and find how you can make your market. You know, try and figure out, well, just because people have always done it, does it make sense to carry on doing it that way? And is, are there, what, what's the areas where you can look at, which says, look, how do you make a difference? How do you, how do you find that thing which doesn't work well at the moment and which you could be known for if you change it? Because there's hundreds of them, you know, once you actually start looking, um, but yeah, especially early on, it's it's really easy just to just to do what everyone else does, just to conform, just to kind of get your head down, get a good job done. Um, and I think you know, I think companies would benefit a lot more if there was more people willing to rock the boat a little bit. Well, if you were to, I guess, start again with no risk involved and all this, what what do you, where do you think you might be really? in a similar position or somewhere completely different? I think I'd probably be in a similar position. Um, I would have probably taken a different path to get here. But I think, yeah, I really, I've worked in the startup space. I've worked in big companies. I've worked with startups from within a big company. Uh, and I've worked in the consulting space, helping sort of people build these things. And, and whichever way I look at it, I fundamentally believe that the only, the way to be successful as a company is to find that way that you can have you know, a, a genuine understanding of what people's needs are what they're trying to achieve where you can legitimately help it's not about just going and asking them because you'll get told all sorts of things it's not about just thinking you know better and and going and just building whatever you think they need it's about understanding what it takes to to build a genuine empathy and a genuine understanding for the their everyday needs and problems and struggles and you know highs and lows and, and all of those things um and then matching that with what's your company great at or what does your company want to be great at? Where where does it have strengths that it can leverage to then help improve those customers' lives? And then bringing those things together to create solutions which help customers whilst also bringing value to the business. And I just don't, I, and maybe, you know, I'm getting stuck in my ways now as I'm getting older, but I don't see how you, you can be successful outside of that, that model. And I'm, um, I guess that's not fair because lots of companies have been successful outside of that model, but they do it because of their size, of their scale, of their strength, of the fact they've got so much of the market, of the fact that they're so entrenched, it's so hard to, to get them out of the way. But they're not delivering greatness. Whereas I think if you can do it, you know, if you genuinely fill in, fill that gap and you have that genuine understanding and can leverage strengths of your companies to to meet, you know, to, to use the understanding of customers' needs to, to meet them, then, yeah, you can do great things. Um, I think one of the wonderful things actually about um, the fact that so many more companies or so many more needs are being met digitally now is that it has lowered some of those those barriers to entry for companies and so you're seeing so many startup companies start to disrupt because they're able to to take that approach to really focus on you know even if it's just a singular customer pain point sometimes and leveraging even though they might have much less resources leveraging the resources they have around that one pain point and being able to deliver these you know, game-changing solutions which bigger companies just didn't see um so yeah, I think I'd end up in this space. Um, I think the route I would have taken to get here is probably be different. I probably would have got into the startup world a lot sooner because um, I think I learned so much more building a startup than I did in the corporate world. Um, 
well, you know, again, so many startups fail. So you need the strength sometimes of the bigger companies to get behind you. So I think I would have still eventually gone to bigger companies and tried to do what I'm doing at the moment, which, you know, is constantly help those companies you know, disrupt themselves and disrupt their industries um, and, and use that product centric approach to do it. So. Well, you, you talk about sort of your wealth of experience from startups, bigger companies, new ventures and big companies. And you also talk about genuine empathy. Do you think that your communication style within the different types of companies changed to get out of that genuine empathy? Or is it it kind of was the same throughout? Probably. I guess, I don't know. I think, so it's, it's one of those things that's hard to answer because you're never the same person. Are you? I mean, all, already, you know, and, and your your memory of who you are differs. So if I was to think back about who I was, you know, 10 years ago, when yeah, we were just starting to explore you know, Rise or, or that sort of stuff, then I'd be projecting who I am now onto my memory of who I was then. So I think I was, I think I've been fairly consistent in my approach, but but that's not going to be true. There's so much that have shaped me over those experiences over ten years that I was probably very different in how I approach things then to how I approach things now. But I don't, you know, um, but yeah, I, I couldn't say how, and I couldn't give any specific examples, but. Um, yeah, I, I hope I am actually. I hope I'm different now because that would show that I'm constantly learning and evolving and, and growing as a person, as opposed to just thinking that I'm I'm perfect and therefore I don't need to change and I'm I'm communicating exactly the same way. So, so I'd like to think I've changed, um, but yeah, I don't know. Well, uh, what advice would you give to people just sort of starting up in product management to sort of step up? It's funny you say starting in product management. I don't know anybody who ever just kind of got it decided that product management was something they were going to get a job into. I think it's because it's a fairly new um, discipline. You know, most people I know fell into it through either starting as a developer or starting marketing or some, somewhere like that. And they've ended up in this space. Um, so I think, yeah, if you, you're starting to come into it now where it is more of an established discipline, I think there's a lot of benefit in growing your understanding of how your business works Um along with your understanding of your customers. You absolutely have to know your customers inside out. You should make sure you take the time to go and speak to customers weekly, you know, if not daily. You know, find opportunities to to go and speak to people who you think are your target customers and just understand them more. Um try and make sure your team has rep- the right representation. You know, so so if you're selling, you know, if your product is someone that's selling to a certain demographic or a certain group of people, you should try and have people who are in that demographic and that group in your team, you know. Um, otherwise, you, you, already you're creating barriers for yourself um, and it's going to be hard for you to empathize with those users. Um, I think you need to understand the business as well. There is a lot of stuff which early on in my career I didn't understand about how businesses work, especially big businesses, you know, how their operations work, how their finances work, how so many of these processes and, and things work. And I think if you get a good grounding in that, that helps you then um, have a greater chance of steering that organization um, in the right way. You know, you'll know, you understand why a certain governance body says no or a certain you know process stops you from doing what you want to do um, as opposed to it. And as opposed to just being, well, the process says no. If you understand well, why the process is in place, what's the process trying to accomplish? Why is, you know, why is it there? What's its purpose? Um, and then you can maybe find a, a middle ground, which is, okay, we think we can still achieve that purpose that it's set up for, but in a way that allows us to do X, um, rather than just seeing it as binary and as a yes or no. Um, and it's something that I think is overlooked. You know, you become focused on the customer, which is great, and focused on your product you want to build, and all of a sudden you see 
the company is like the bad guys who you're constantly battling with to try and make make what you want to do a reality. Um, whereas if you understand, you know, they've got good reasons for doing what they are trying to do as well and for putting those processes in place and empathize with, with that side of things as well, then I think you've got more chance of, uh, of achieving what you want to achieve. Also, okay, so talking about the sort of almost the, the person knowing the company, I think it's also important for the company to foster a good environment for the workers that they're in. Fostering an environment that's conducive to innovation is uh, almost a crucial objective for leaders. What recommendations do you have for creating that creative work culture that nurtures innovation and change? So that's a tough one, isn't it? Because it depends on each organization. Um, so I, th- the whole Skunk Works idea, you know, has been popular for a while. The whole idea of setting up this this sort of group of rebels in in a separate building in a separate garage or something and letting them go and work at things, I think, is popular. And I'm I'm not sure I think that's the right way to do it. I think for the people in that area, it's great. You know, all of a sudden you're the ones who can you know, come to work on skateboards in hoodies, you know, play ping pong, and you know, being a building that's cool and you know, be the cool kids. Um, and it's great to be in, but having that separation, I don't think, is conducive to long-term success of innovating as a company. You need to build innovation as part of the culture. You need to build into the organization that, you know, just, just that, like I say, that, that muscle, almost that, um, that culture of, we're here to, to help our customers. And the way we help our customers is going to change because the world's always changing. Our customers are changing. The environment, everything, you know, it, it's never still. The only constants change. And so we need to constantly be understanding how we change to meet those needs. We can't rely on what worked for us yesterday. And if that is baked into the heart of the culture, then you start to approach things as so how do we have to keep upping our game? How do we keep having to look at new things to do? How do we, yeah, how do we keep innovating to keep ourselves ahead of the game? Um, and that should be, a, a, you know, actually this fundamental thing that's, that's within every company as opposed to just being this thing which a group of people in another in another building do so i think um yeah i think the advice i'd give is whatever type of company you are whatever stage you're at whatever you think might work to get you off the ground initially your long-term goal has to eventually be to build that culture of um of being of embracing change of you know understanding how change is going to impact your organization or how you can even drive change you want to be out at the forefront driving it. So what do we need in order to be able to do that? And then you need to look at how your company is structured in order to support that. So again, how how do you, and I know I'm, I'm very biased here, product-centric approach I love in that model. Yeah, How do you start working as small squads? How do you empower people to make decisions rather than using a command and control approach? How do you, you know, give them the opportunity to go and do that discovery, understand where there are, are new opportunities, where you can do things differently, where you can disrupt yourself um, and then empower them to go after those opportunities across the organization, um, I think is a much healthier place to be. This podcast is brought to you by Label Sessions, the global platform that connects you to the best advice from the most interesting people. Around the world, we work with brands to connect their people to true leaders, just like the people you hear on this podcast, for live sessions of advice, mentoring, or sometimes to collaborate on ideas. To find out more, visit labelsessions.com and book in for a demo with our team. How do you think you, you strike the the balance though, between this has worked, you know, this is 
this is potentially something that could grow further and something like, oh, you might need to pivot because this potential whisper could be, you know, groundbreaking, something that we could be the first people to go after. Yeah, I mean, I, first of all, I, I wouldn't want to be in a position where it's a binary choice. You know, it's, it shouldn't be we do this or that and, and that's the only thing we can do. Um, often that pivot is not something where it's a whisper as you described it and it's just, well, we've got to now make this decision. You know, if, if it was just a whisper, you can't, you can't just pivot to that bit. You can't do it based on that. I think the better place to be is you have a direction you're going in. You have you're you're constantly evolving how you get there anyway. So you've got teams which are, are you know are going after that vision that we talked about earlier, and they're doing it in a way that allows them to learn as they go. And as they're doing that learning, they will might find that thing that you've described as a whisper, uh, and then they can start exploring it and they can start validating it. And so you're you know whilst you're all still moving towards this direction that the vision of the company is painting you, and you can start exploring. Or some of these other things, something which helps us get to that position in a better way, um, or is that whisper something which says actually our vision's wrong, which is sort of that very rare event, and then again you can still be working towards that vision while you start exploring and discovering and doing work to to almost validate: do we believe we need to change our vision of where we're going as a company? Um, but that's only possible if you have all of that capability built in where people have the ability to to do that discovery, to do that exploration, to do that validation, to to help you build confidence in the decisions that you're going to make. Um, so that then when you make that choice, eventually, if you do decide to change your vision as a company of where you're trying to get to, you're, you've done it from an informed position rather than having to almost be in this, or what should we do? Well, we'll, we'll go for this one. Um, so yeah, I think I think again, it's all about building that culture, which means that you're you're in a position where you you've got as much information as you can, you've done really good discovery work, you've done really good validation work, and you have you you have got the best information you can to make that decision. Um, and so it isn't yeah, it's, it's it's something which is you know it's something you can stand behind and support and you know, have confidence in. So that that very very much makes sense. Um, why? Yeah, when you say it like that, it's like, well, yeah, duh. <laughs> We've gotten through the part of the almost the long questions. We've got a new quick fire questions, which we'll start with. Okay, so um, first of all, where do you go to feed your brain creatively? So two two things. Anywhere I can go where my brain gets freed up a little bit. So there's so one is I love walking in mountains. I love going getting into the hills, just getting out into the country and just kind of it's. I just like walking. Even if I go to London sometimes, I try not to get the underground. I try to walk because I think when you're in that space, you just let your mind be a bit freer and you can you can think on things. Um, but the trouble with that is is it means that your brain is focused on that thing that you're thinking about, um, which is really useful sometimes. But sometimes you need almost that thing where your brain just doesn't think about anything. And for me, I like playing sports in that because in the moment in sport, you have to be very much in the moment. You can't be thinking about all these other things because, you know, a ball hit you in the face or something so you've got to you know you've constantly got to be in the moment in sports so I like playing sport um you know I'm getting a bit too old now for it so that I again it's that's it's a space I find where your brain has to be present and in the moment you know whereas any other circumstance outside of that your brain always has that chance to go and start thinking about that thing that you don't want it to think about um so yeah I do that I keep thinking I should try meditation as well I think that would help me be in the moment as well but I keep forgetting to make time to do it but um, so yeah, for me, it's it's playing sport or um, getting out on walks are the two things which I think help help me keep that mental health and 
creativity. What sports do you play? Uh, so I play American football, um, but not a contact version anymore because I'm a bit too old for that. So I play a, a non-contact version of American football. Um, so that's what I, I do the most. Uh, sometimes I still play a basketball game or, or something like that or a five-a-side football game, but yeah, mainly uh, American football. Oh, wow. Do you follow it in the States as well? Yeah. Who's your yeah, team? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's oh, uh, the Miami Dolphins, which means I've, I've been a, a, a long-suffering <laughs> fan for... 35 years, basically. Yeah. Well, hope hope they do a turnaround sometime soon. Well, this season, it's looking, yeah. looking positive, so we'll see. So here. Yeah. Um, okay, uh, next. Uh, what do you think is overhyped right now, and is there anything you think is interesting that isn't being picked up by the mainstream? Oh, um, overhyped. So if you'd have asked me probably a year ago, I would have definitely said the metaverse space um which i think now is probably coming a bit more down to earth now uh and don't get me wrong i think there's some great opportunities in that metaverse space you know i think that augmented reality especially and the ability to to overlay digital things into the real world and use that as a communication mechanism has got huge potential but there was a point a year ago where everything you know you know any customers you spoke to it was more like we want we want to do something in the metaverse we think we can use the metaverse to do this or to do this and to do this um and yeah, I think that's always the problem with starting with a solution rather than starting with a problem. You know, it's it, you, there's some great use cases for it, but it has to be that it's the best use case. Um, you know, I've seen seen other things go through this blockchain for a while. You know, everything had to have a blockchain solution. Um, and sometimes, you know what, it, it's great when you don't need any sort of centralized, you know, approval, and you don't need any sort of company that's in the middle. Uh, but there's a whole lot of examples where people working at blockchain where actually you're always going to need some sort of trusted company and you may as well just do a you know just have a trusted company owning the database and rather than having to, to use a blockchain solution um, i think now there's a risk that ai is say ai generative ai chat gpt those types of models uh, are in that space you know everyone seems to think that again they can just do a solution you know, we're going to use chat gpt what's the problem um but it's so i think it's at risk of being overhyped saying that i have got a lot of um, optimism about some of the changes that that can bring. I think that, that that sort of technology, you know, with the maturity it's getting to, could be a, a really helpful technology. Um, but I think people need to understand its limitations. Ultimately, it's still just a bunch of maths. Yeah, it's still just something predicting the next word um, that might be the right word within that you know, that construct. Um, and it's. Yeah, so I think people need to to go into it understanding those limitations as opposed to thinking that it's this you know genuinely intelligent yeah entity. Um, and if that, that happens, then I think the power that that it's shown about being able to create re- very relevant content and re- very relevant information um, can be yeah can be game changing in a few industries. But you know it can it can produce bad results, it can produce wrong results, it can produce all sorts of things. So we we have to do it with with that understanding of its weaknesses. And I think right now people aren't uh, being a bit myopic to that and just seeing it as it's going to be able to solve everything using this technology. I think I remember someone saying in a previous podcast that if we start just replacing the word AI with just st- apply to st- statistics, then it becomes more like oh, it's, it's more understandable, it's grasping. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and that's. I mean, just the fact it has intelligence in its name, people, you know, and but it, it's it's not. There's no intelligence. It's, I mean, look, maybe I'm not. I don't understand the technology deeply enough, so I could be completely wrong with this. But from my understanding of it, it's 
it's able to simulate intelligence because it is a very good probability engine. It's very, very good at figuring out that out of all the probabilities, this is probably the best one. And then by using that probability mechanism, it creates this impression of intelligence. Um, but it, it's, as far as I'm aware, it doesn't have reasoning yet. It doesn't have you know, all of those other things which go into what I would class as intelligence. Um, and that's it. Yeah, I think that's the problem because people see the intelligence side of it. Whereas if people, as you said, saw it as actually this very sophisticated probability machine, which can give you a very high likelihood that what it produces is able to do what you need it to do, then that's, you know, then it can be really useful if you do in that context. Exactly. Next question. What is your last memorable tech purchase? Memorable as in, it's the one which comes to mind because it was the last thing I bought. <laughs> oh, memorable because it actually was was, uh, was useful and impactful. Uh, either, both. Uh, both. Okay, last one I can remember is the computer that I'm talking to you on at the moment because I bought that fairly recently. Um, I needed a new machine, so yeah, I went out and got a new Mac, which is great. Um, still just you know, pretty much the same as the last Mac. It's just you know a bit newer and a bit faster, but it doesn't really, it's not really game-changing. Last technology I can think of that was Game changing for us. Um, do you know what? I, I think it's probably so. I got a, a car, I mean, years ago now. It's a, I think my car's about five years old now, but um, it's one of those where it's got um, you know, just a lot of technology in it which just helps make your life easier. You know, when I was younger, I probably just wanted the fastest car, you know, and that. Whereas now, I just want comfort, and you know, you can sit in this car. You know, you, you can put the adaptive cruise control on and the lane thing and stuff like that, and it means that you, you, know, you just feel supported. You feel like you've got that, you know, that extra. It's also like an extra set of eyes on the road. You sat in a, a nice, big, comfy chair, you know, and and driving can just be like this almost relaxing experience. Um, and yeah, I like that. That's 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 what I'd rather my journeys be now rather than you know just trying to drive fast. Well, I mean, you can't if you're going in and out of London, you can't go that fast. Anyway, no. Well, luckily, I, luckily, I don't live in London. I live in Manchester, so um, you know, we've and I actually live just outside Manchester in the uh, just near the Peak District. So there's lots of country roads I could go faster if I want. Well, now you're going on motorways comfortably. Yeah, that's it. Now I just drive comfortably and slowly, and just yeah, enjoy listening to a podcast whilst you know just sat in the car and just travelling along. Yeah, that uh, leads perfectly into my next question. Um, are there any books or podcasts that you're listening to or reading at the moment that are notable or anything from the past that you'd particularly want to bring up? Yeah, so I think two podcasts I really find valuable in the product space are Melissa Perry's podcast, I can't remember what it's called, um, and the um, Mind the Product podcast as well. So I can't remember the actual names of either of those podcasts, but they're, you know, they're, they're the people behind them. Uh, I think they're both great. I think they're really useful. They put great content on every week. They always make me think of things in a different different way. So I think they're both um, great podcasts to listen to. Um, I also have a bunch of ones around sport and things, but that's quite as relevant. No, so, I mean, um, never know. What ones do you um, listen to? So there's um, there's a lot of Miami Dolphins ones. So it's, <laughs> it's not going to be highly relevant to the audience. Um, so Three Yards Per Carry, I like listening to. The Miami Herald one, I like listening to. Um, yeah. But now we're going to start going down my obsession with the you know, uh, the American Dolphins who've never won anything in as long as I can remember. You know, as a sports fan, you kind of cling on to hope, don't you? Um, so yeah, the, the the product management ones I think are are the really you know, are both really useful, and I'd absolutely recommend those. Um, as far as books, um, I 
there's so many interesting books at the moment. It's, it's a bit like um, you know when you browse the internet and one thing leads to another thing. You know, I can be the same on Amazon now, where I'll really see one book and then I'll see a recommendation for another book, and before I know it, I've bought twelve, and then I'm trying to work through them. Um, but ones which I think I really, I really like it. So in in the product space, first of all, so Melissa Perry, whose podcast I mentioned, she's got a great book called Escaping the Build Trap, which I think is really good. Um, Marty Kagan's book, um, Inspired, is I think if anyone's starting in product management, that's a great place to start. Um, I like um, Christina Wodkie, I think her, I can't remember how you pronounce her surname, um, on Radical Focus, because we talked about KPIs and OKRs earlier, and I think that's a really good one to explore You know, OKRs and their power in you know being used as a change metric. Uh, Dean, um, Dan Olson's The Lean Product Playbook's great for giving you some ideas of just tools and techniques and approaches to product management. So um, so I think all of those. Oh, and Teresa Torres' um, book is also really good in that space too. So so in the product space, they're all great. But I think you need to read around the product space as well. So I got a lot of value from, so I mentioned Build by Tony Fidel earlier, um, but I also like um, the Ed Catmull one, Creativity Inc., talking about how they built Pixar. Um, and there's so many parallels between the creativity of the movie industry and how product management works and that you know the fact that you need to you don't just go and film the film there's a lot of work to do to do storyboarding first to explore things to to see what sets are going to look like what you know all of this sort of stuff so so i, I yeah i found a lot of value in in that book um because some other ones now i've got a load of them here some of behind me really shouldn't I? but um oh, there's build yeah yeah there's Sorry. build yeah there's build there's tony Sadell's. yeah um yeah, innovation stack actually about um, Square and about starting that I thought was an interesting one. Um, I think that never split the difference is pretty good as well, just around negotiating. Um, I found that enjoyable. Um, there's a couple Richard Rummelts, um can't see it up back there, but um, good strategy, bad strategy he wrote, which I thought was a really good book. And I know he's just bought another one out, which I've, I've bought, but I've not read yet. Um, so I think he's always great from a strategy perspective. Um, so yeah, all of those. Do you want do you want fiction ones as well? Why Just not? Why not? I take one out of all It's a fiction. Um, if, if Christopher Brookmeyer is my favourite author, he's brilliant. Um, which most people have never heard of him, but he's been going for about must be twenty five years now. And every book he reads is just always fun. It's just one of those books where you can read, and it's always some sort of crime, sort of thriller thing. Um, always with a, a bit of political commentary thrown in as well. Um, but yeah, he's just, I always just find it a really entertaining read. Yeah, it's those books which you're just reading one sitting. Um, and so, yeah, anything by him I'd recommend. Um, Catch 22 is still my favorite book of all time. I mean, well, I think that's, that's probably it. I, unless you want, you know, I could start going through the entire bookshop. But that, <laughs> I mean, yeah. those are, I've currently got a one in, one out system in my house because I've run out of space. But the list that you've, I've got to start reading faster with the, the books that you've just listed. Yeah, um, amazing. I've got two more questions on here, and we'll wrap up. Um, first one: So, what is the first thing that you do when you wake up in the morning? Do you have a routine? Uh, yeah, but it's not a good one. Um, so, first thing I do is tend to realise that I'm already late because I've got to before I before I do anything, I've got to get take the dog out for a walk, and I've got to you know, get her out, make sure that you know, she's had a good walk in the morning. Uh, I've got to get that done in time to get home to, to drive my daughter to school because her school's too far away to walk to and there's no bus service that goes to it. So I need to do that. Um, 
and then somewhere in there I need to get back and actually, you know, do the hygiene stuff you should do when you get up in the morning. Like, <laughs> you do have a shave, you know, fit that in somewhere um, before, you know, trying to then, you know, normally start and work by, you know, half eight, nine-ish after both the kids are at school, sort of trying to actually get started and, and then sort of frantically get ahead of the day. Um, yeah, I'd love to be one of these people, which is on LinkedIn, who are like, you know, yeah, you're up at four in the morning, they've, they've been to the, the gym, they've swum. 30 lengths have done yoga and you know then they've prepped for the day and made themselves some sort of latte or you know absolutely not like that it's very much chaotic in the morning in, in our house just kind of scrambling to to get everything done that you need to get done in order to be able to start work by nine o'clock i'm glad that someone else oh, yeah That's not maybe. i'm glad that someone else's house is like that as well because everyone's oh yeah go wake up at 5 30 go to the gym meditate for a bit go out for a walk sit in nature for a while i'm like wow we have really different mornings yeah i've no idea how yeah unless i just didn't sleep i've no idea how i'd ever be able to fit stuff like that it's just yeah, it's a bit I also, I don't understand the leaders who are like, oh, no, it's fine. You know, five out of four hours sleep is fine. I'm like, no, 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 I could not function. Yeah, if I if I get less than seven hours sleep, I'm, yeah, I, I I can sense the difference. You know, I can't, yeah, I struggle to think. I get yeah, very foggy, struggle to, yeah, actually be effective. So, yeah, I need to get sleep. And I think that also with the sports as well, you definitely notice. Like, that's the one place, well, I say, no, there's many places, but that's the one place that you mentally physically everything you notice when you've had too little sleep i mean that leads us to the last question okay this one's an odd one the one that when they asked me i was like i don't okay um so on a scale of one to ten how weird are you <laughs> um i guess it's all relative isn't it so um i'm probably relative to most of the people i know i'm probably at that nine or ten part of the scale maybe even up to 12 or 13 it's a one to ten scale um but uh, but then you know, but then I'll go and meet someone who and realise actually, maybe I'm just a five because you can go and meet some people who are really weird and creative and fun. So um, yeah. But I'd say yeah, from the people I tend to meet on a day to day basis, I'm at that nine or ten end of the scale. Why? Why do? You, why do you think that? I don't know. I, I, so people say things like, "Well, why? Why does it have to be that? Why?" And I'll ask. You know, it's and and people seem to take for granted things which I'm always thinking well but why does that have to be the case? And then you challenge it and then you realize actually it's not the case. And and so you're constantly questioning almost everything around in the world around me See, is, is what I normally do. But it feels like most people don't do that. So maybe I'm just a little bit weird. But you know, I'm constantly, constantly asking why um, and constantly sort of challenging things, which um, which I think a lot of people are happy to just let go. So, uh, so yeah, I think that's probably the, the main thing which I always think makes... Yeah, people almost you know, look at you. Can't, can't you just go with it? Because isn't it obvious, you know? So, um, so, yeah, I think that's probably why. I think a good way to be weird. Yeah, I think so too. So concludes another episode of Label Sessions Presents. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast no matter your platform of choice. And of course, start your journey today with us at labelsessions.com.